Welcome to Climate Anxiety and the Kid Question, a podcast that explores climate change, how it impacts our emotions and sense of well-being in the world, and ultimately how we feel about having and raising children in this climate-altered landscape. I'm your host, Jade Sasser. In this episode, I'm talking to Sarah, a university professor who's thinking a lot about climate anxiety, the landscape of wildfires in her native California, and how climate change shapes her approach to parenting. Let's get into it. Okay, so to begin, can you tell me how you identify yourself in terms of uh, race, gender, and age? Okay, I identify as a white woman, 45 years old. Okay, and where are you from? Santa Monica, California. Okay. All right, so can you tell me what role does climate change play in your life? Wow. Uh, Climate change itself plays the role of um, wildfires. So I do live in an area that can potentially have more, has increased wildfires. And in an area where a lot out of indigenous practices with the land used to make the land more, uh, you know, resilient to wildfires, but because of development and because of the criminalization of those practices, we have more wildfires and of course, climate change compounding that and other knock-on effects of not having more prescribed fires like increased disease and decrease in different kinds of harvesting opportunities around here. And of course, salmon and fish and all that kind of stuff. So these ecosystem effects of wildfires are part of our kind of daily conversation in the place I live. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the sense of having access to really clean air, really beautiful landscapes, a lot of green, a lot of rain uh, has that being under threat with increased warming is something that people are spending a lot of time thinking about. The redwoods here, which are such a keystone species in terms of keeping everything going that way, are you know dependent on a constant marine layer of fog. Mm-hmm. And so the warmer it gets, these types of ecosystems are retreating. So that's the ecosystem answer. The emotional answer is that I think about climate change as this sort of bigger historical arc that I feel I'm living in. Mm-hmm. And maybe other people in other times in history have been aware of a larger historical arc that has something to do with other types of things. Um, and this seems to be the prominent one in my, in my circles and in my life. Um, so I think about it also because of my work. So I think about it with my teaching, my program development, administrative work, what should we be doing to respond to climate change academically in the humanities? Uh, What do the humanities do around climate change? Um, And of course, now, since I've written a book on the emotional tools required to cope with climate change and to mitigate climate change, Um, I'm spending a lot of time doing that work. So what led you to that work, specifically the work around emotions? Uh, What led me to it was a sense that I got from students that they couldn't do anything with their lives unless they had better ways of facing this risk. 
and they their own sense of uh, anxiety or dread, fear, lack of imagination about the future, lack of desire about their future. The only story they lived in was the climate apocalypse story. And that seemed really sad when I started to realize that with my students. I didn't, that wouldn't, wasn't the way it was, you know, a few years before they started to be like that. They started to be like that somewhere. I would say, you know, it wasn't just like in one moment, but it kind of crept up and dawned on me by about 2014, probably. <laughs> and uh, I had never seen that kind of um, uh, despair and anguish and dread in my students in environmental studies before. So they really held up the mirror to that reality. And I quite frankly think I, it took them, it could took them being so freaked out for me to start to think maybe I should be worried about something too. You know? <laughs> so I, I, but, before that, I kind of thought of climate change probably the way now I've studied it. I understand what I was thinking about it before. I thought of it as a kind of a luxury concern and the Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of thing and something that I probably wouldn't experience or think have to think about in my lifetime. Um, you know, something less morally urgent than other matters in, that I wanted to work on and maybe even a distraction from those things. Mm -hmm. And so I had really kind of already put climate change in a box that, that I wasn't going to worry about. <laughs> Ironically, isn't that funny? So yes. yeah, you know, then now it's all I do and talk about. So it's funny to think that there was a time when climate, when I was a climate denier, you know? <laughs> I mean, in, in the kind of like true true sense of the word, not in the kind of politics sense of the word, right. that denial as an emotional response to a risk that feels something we can't do anything about um, is appropriate, natural human response. Mm -hmm. And that felt very, very comfortable for me. And frankly, it kind of still does, but it really took my students freaking out and their bare, their bareness about it. I mean, they were just bear in their fear. And, and, and now I think that is, it takes incredible courage. At the time, I wondered if they were snowflakes or if they were, you know, just going through normal hormonal changes. Or something. <laughs> you know, I had all kinds of horrible ways of dismissing their, the intensity of their emotion about it. Yeah. Um, but it, it took me a while to come around, you know, it took me a while to come around. So what's interesting in that is that you said that your students held up a mirror for you. So when you started to realize that that mirroring was happening, what emotions did you start to identify in yourself that you were feeling about climate change? Yeah, um, I think I, fear for sure. Grief, absolutely. It started to uh, make me think that it made me, it helped me allow me to turn my gaze to what was being lost and, and allow myself to actually feel sadness around the many forms of suffering that climate change is kicking off, mm -hmm. uh, both human and non-human. Um, and even ecosystem-wise, you know, like when I think about ecosystems changing, there's no specific creatures I can attach my affection to, but nonetheless, that I feel grief about that too. Mm -hmm. um, I, 
I'd say grief, fear, certainly some anxiety, a lot of anxiety, but um, that's since then it's, you know, I figured out how to deal with that. <laughs> and gather, uh, a whole book on that. Um, but in some regret, because by the time I came around to that, I had had two kids, which I expect we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. And regret might be not the right word there, but some questioning there around my denial, you know, like the, what it might cost the people I love the most. Mm-hmm. And um, I think some, I think I can, I can also say I, I felt some kind of myopia about, okay, this is, this is now going to be the cause of, of our lives. When I say our, I mean, those people who care about it, you know, now that mm-hmm. I'm including myself all of a sudden in that category. Um, and a sort of, um, sense of commitment, you know, to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned a few moments ago that you have children. That was going to be my next question anyway. Um, Does climate change or your thoughts or feelings about it, does that enter into how you think about or approach parenting at all? Absolutely. And in fact, as you start to raise the question, I can feel my heart rate picking up. So (laughs) I can tell you right now, just my body is, is responding to that. Um, the, the concern I have there in part has to do with things that I realize are a, ma- a function of my relative, our relative privilege, my, mine and my kids. And that is that I had this idea because of my privilege that any reproduction I did would involve my children having maybe a better life than I did, or, or at least equal to Mm -hmm. as good a life as I've had and all the access to resources and privileges and opportunities and, you know, the pleasures of, of, of living on this planet. Mm -hmm. And that seems all of a sudden, maybe not so true. That feels destabilized. And, I, I think that um, the, the luxury of not having to think about it that I had, they will not have. Mm. Um, so there's a sort of loss of innocence that I, I realize I'm attached to their innocence as children. Mm-hmm. I'm attached to innocence in children, period. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I realize that that's, that's a cultural thing, right? That's not necessarily... Um, you know, always what everybody thinks about children across time and history and time and space, but that there's a sense of, um, you know, when I think when I grew up myself, I had a sense that going out into nature, so to speak, was supposed to be a lovely healing thing. And it, it was it wasn't necessarily for me, but that was kind of the story. And I kept thinking, yeah, I sometimes have that and sometimes have access to that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that my children, really frankly, even my own generation anymore anyway, will ever have that kind of untainted view of nature that mm-hmm. that nature is always already um damaged, incomplete, um, potentially going to 
fall apart from underneath us. You know? <laughs> um, and and that this sense of uh, the gra- very literal ground that we stand on not being stable um, is just the way they're always going to feel about about the environment. It's always mm-hmm. going to have this negative valence. And when I say negative, I mean sort of risk risky. You know, there's always threat there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's you know, sort of like being banished from the garden or something. And I say that because I've, I've sort of studied in my own research that role of that recovery narrative in the environmental movement. So I'm conscientious of that being part of the sort of, um, tradi- you know, the culture I'm steeped in, you know. Mm-hmm. I wonder, uh, oh, first, actually, how old are your children? I have an 11 and an 8-year-old. Okay. So then given what you said earlier about your own sort of coming to awareness of climate emotions. It sounds like you had them before you were sort of identifying your feelings about climate change. So I'm wondering, did climate change or environmental issues come into the picture when you were thinking about having children or did they only enter the picture later on? They did. And um, I think I, I, it wasn't really climate change at that time. It was a sort of environmental impact aspect. And I, I often think that there's been a shift that's happened in discourse around reproduction, reproductive refusal, whereby in the 70s environmental thought, you know, sort of post Paul Ehrlich's population bomb and all of that, Mm -hmm. that if you didn't reproduce, it was because you didn't want to add on to the impact on the planet. And that this um, this kicked your ecological footprint into a whole new realm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I weighed that, you know, that was what I weighed. Um, and it wasn't about whether my children would have a great life or not. You know, it was about whether it was the ethical thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty steeped at that point in a lot of research in graduate school, when I was first thinking about having children, I was in graduate school and I was really steeped in the research that you're, that you've done, you know, this kind of Malthusian critique of the population discourse, mm-hmm. the feminist response to that. And I remember the year after I had my first kid writing my first, you know, one of my first uh, publications from graduate school was about the myth of green motherhood. Oh, wow. And yeah, and I had this, I, I really wanted to respond to what I perceived as, and this is, you know, sort of classic sort of white female environmentalist discourse, but this kind of argument that um, the sort of American mother is responsible for saving the planet. Mm-hmm. Whether that's through not or having children differs depending on what moment we're in. But um, this kind of notion that um, that through my actions as a mother, all of a sudden I felt cast into a much more, uh, you know, ne- the necessity of my environmentalism increased, right? Like all of a sudden I really had to use reusable diapers <laughs> about all this impact and all these car seats. And, you know, I kept thinking to myself, wow, all of a sudden now as a mother, the environmental subjecthood um, feels much more intense. Hmm. And, and from a Foucauldian perspective, I had this real feminist aversion to it. Hmm. And I wrote, I kind of wrote that to work through my own um, 
uh, tangled and conflicting feelings about being in an environmental studies person, because I was getting a PhD in environmental studies, and become thinking about becoming a mother. Right. Um, Yeah. So I was thinking about it, but I was pretty hostile to the environmentalist uh, impulse that what we do in our individual lives, whether it's riding a bike or having children or whatever, was what really we should be focusing on. I was pretty, pretty hostile to that from a feminist perspective. So. Right. So I wonder you, a few times you mentioned privilege um, and privilege in your own life. And I wonder, can you speak to that a little bit? Do you feel like these concerns around environmentalism, green motherhood, et cetera, um, are, what are the specific ways that you think privilege comes into the picture? And specifically, I'm wondering, do you think race has anything to do with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there are a couple of strands there. Uh, I probably won't cover them all, so I'll try to prioritize them, triage them here. Um, that the very, you know, there's sort of, I was just in a talk yesterday where someone from Gary, Indiana said climate change, you know, doesn't is not the top priority for my community. How do you make this connection for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And I I go back and forth on this sort of, and he even brought up the hierarchy of needs, you know? And I do think that climate change, the way it has been framed, has been from a very privileged vantage point as not being connected to the daily lives of people, including including even myself, like I described, it seemed to me something distant. And I think that there's a funny paradox happening there that, that on the one hand, the people who, who are and will continue to suffer the worst impacts of climate change are somehow the people for whom the climate movement thinks that this is not their top priority. Hmm. And there's a, that's a funny, that's a weird paradox that I haven't quite figured out. But I do occasionally have this mirror held up to me that says something like, if you, you know, since you're talking about climate, the fact that you are so interested in climate change is a product of your, of your white privilege. Mm. And I, I think that that is a pretty interesting, but changing point. And that was my original aversion to climate change saying, this is not about justice. <laughs> this is about somebody caring about polar bears, you know, you know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to study climate change until my students sort of brought it to my, brought, brought it back to my attention. Um, and you know, the, the sort of justice dimension of climate change is not settled yet. It is really dynamic right now. And I don't, you know, I don't think anything I could say about the, the racial dimensions or the privileged dimensions will be the same in six months. Hmm. <laughs> That's a really interesting point. Yeah. I never, I, you know, the fact that the word justice has been added to the word climate as a movement is is really new and, and incredible. And here comes one of my children. Speaking <laughs> of which, one moment. Okay. Hi. I'm, I'm in the middle of a work thing. They're inside the house. They're maybe they're in a dad's office. Or in the garden, wandering around. Because the guys are out there doing work. <laughs> was the 11 year old Got it. <laughs> um, 
Um, you know, and, and I was just in another talk the other day where some great man said to me, oh, please don't add the word justice to climate. I was just getting all these white people on board. If you add justice to the climate movement, it'll turn all of them off. <sighs> I thought, oh, my God, that's strong. He was really, uh, let's just say, bordering on dysregulated when he said this Wow. So you can really feel that there is um, there is a real dynamism happening in the movement where climate justice has reached a mainstream level. The notion that climate change is not just a privileged concept, that it's affecting the people who are the least responsible for creating it, sort of the basic insight of the climate justice movement, this notion that inequality and injustice is interconnected with climate change. This is becoming mainstream. Mm-hmm. But you, you still have climate being taken up by far-right folks. There was just a, a new... Did you see the podcast that just came out about this, about the white supremacists are taking up climate change? No. Um, consider this. It's a 15-minute thing. I consider this. It just came out. So check it out. Okay. But it's, you know, it's like, I kind of... You know, I wrote about this in my first book, why why the right wing likes the environmental arguments, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of, and I, I kind of thought the book would be out of date when it got published in 2013, but it's, it's actually getting worse. So, you know, the, the, the ways that climate is getting taken up in different identity politics discussions, in different, um, you know, in, in different um, discussions about power and privilege and race and identity, the that's not settled. It is really dynamic right now. Right. Um, so let me ask you on that note, do those questions around race and power and privilege, do they also come into the discussion of climate emotions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think so. I think that there's a sense that emotions are the um, most privileged thing that you can you can have time to talk about, you know, like once all those hierarchy of needs are met, then you can maybe talk about emotions. <laughs> and, and the medical system in terms of access to those kind that kind of, those different kinds of support, you can get access to food before you can get access to mental health, right? So the medical system mirrors that, 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 that hierarchy, that value hierarchy. Um, and so uh, this, this idea that, the emotion life of people who care about climate change, those folks being snowflakes or privileged or not, or not having grit, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pushback about that for better or for worse. You know, I can sort of see some of it. And what I think is missing in that conversation is uh, another angle on it is that the emotional intelligence that the climate movement needs to engage in climate for the long haul ironically, comes from social movements like the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, indigenous movements, that emotional intelligence and wisdom, those wisdom traditions of people who have undergone a lot of suffering and who have had to keep going despite news of not, you know, their efforts not coming to pass. Though The people who know the most about that um, ha- are the people who still are, have the least privilege. So in a in a funny way, um, the emotion dimension can't we we could potentially overcome that gap with thinking about the lessons that the these social movements might be able to teach the climate movement. Yeah. 
And at the same time, I wonder if more people need to take emotions seriously. Um, I have had numerous conversations with people and, you know, just kind of touched on the topic of climate emotions, um, and especially among young people and have been met with a response of, as you said, those young people are just snowflakes. They're too fragile. Um, life has always been easy for them. So this is the first hard thing they're experiencing. But then I've also heard other people who don't dismiss the emotions, but then who say, well, so what? Everyone experiences emotions. We experience all kinds of emotions all the time. Why do these emotions matter? Mm. Yeah, that's such a great uh, question. And mm, I, I, on the, my, my quick, my instinctive answer is to say, Emotions matter because they can, can be harnessed for political change. <laughs> That's <Yeah. laughs> my first go-to answer on that one. Uh, we've seen how anger, guilt, sacrifice, uh, denial, fear, how these are the bedrock of most political matters. <laughs> yeah. um, and when you, when you acquire an emotional lens, you start to see absolutely everything happening in politics, you know, changing the material world right around us, right, left, and center. You can see the emotion underlying all of it. Mm. And then the research supports that, that, that we are actually emotional beings, not, in fact, logical, rational creatures. And that whatever reasons and logic we might use to defend our decisions is through this thing called confirmation bias, whereby we just seek out selectively the stuff that already reinforces emotions that we're having. <laughs> right? So there's, there's this pretense that we have that we are rational creatures is so strong in mm -hmm. American culture that even with the research that shows that we're in fact emotion, we make decisions based on emotions this is still somehow stigmatized. It's still somehow, you know, means that there's something wrong with us, that we have emotions. It gets in the way, right? The enlightenment told us that emotions get in the way of truth, get in the way of action, get in the way of uh, productivity for capitalism. Right. Um, so emotions are this messy thing that get in the way of a kind of enlightenment approach to, to the world. Um, so I can understand that. I was just talking and just, I was just thinking about how in a post fact world, right. In the fake news world, in a, in a, in a moment where, you know, I remember with Pence and Harris's vice presidential debates, you know, if we had that, that game where you take a shot every time you hear the word fact or science, you know, it would have been, it's amazing how they both deployed that the appeal to logos, the appeal to science, the mm. fact both sides as a rhetorical strategy. Um, you know, the, the, the role of, of um, our fetish of objectivity in, every, in so much that we do is in itself an object of study. And I think mm. for me, what that goes to the, the sort of underlying answer to your question, which is that um, when you look at people who study affect theory, not just psychology, not just people who say psychology and politics, but affect theory, you can see that they are they outline and map all the ways that emotion have actually determined re material reality, human mm -hmm. emotions. I think that's just it's amazing how emotions do a number on on society. You know, they they, they do cultural work, as affect theories would say. And we just, you know, choose to not look at it because it's, it seems 
it's it's frightening to think about, you know. Absolutely. Messy. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I wonder if we can switch gears and come back to your kids, uh, one of whom was walking around in the background. Um, what do they know about climate change? Oh, they know probably more than I would like them to know. <laughs> <laughs> in part because my own book about climate anxiety came out right at the very first month of covid so all my book talks have been on Zoom in front of them. Oh, <laughs> interesting. You know, so how do you censor that, right? right. Um, so there's probably, you know, they want to know, Mom, what are you doing? What are you? Why do you have to go do that thing? Why are you doing that thing? Why are you on another interview about that or talk about that? And and then they, they probably overhear some of it, too. <laughs> but um, so what do they know about climate change? They know it. They definitely know it's happening. They uh, have worries about it. And so I would say my oldest daughter, who does have anxiety issues, um, it, among other things she's worried about, you know, with COVID have, having happened, she has an irrational, distorted anxiety about um, the heat here. So when it's, when it's not raining. So she immediately goes to her feelings about climate change based on the, what's happening with the weather. And I think that's a lot of people. That's a, I think that's a pretty common symptom of climate anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, the weather can trigger you one way or the other on on how you feel about climate change. So yeah, there's there's a lot of that going on. And my daughter was just lecturing to me today. My eight year old goes, "We watch nature programs, and nature programs talks about climate change, and it often puts humanity in one big clump." Mm-hmm. And I think nature programs have a lot to answer for, even though I love them. Yeah. But you know, they teach they teach some pretty dangerous. Uh-oh, it looks like you're, oh, you froze. You froze for just a moment. Sorry. Nature programs do what I think they think is good by teaching people re- the reality of of what's bad things are happening to these ecosystems for these animals and stuff. But they also do so in pretty irresponsible ways that are just tropes, you know, just tropes like, oh, humanity has incurred, you know, the incursions in this habitat, have meant that this animal doesn't have habitat anymore. And so things are awful. And so I have a daughter now who thinks cities are evil mm-hmm. and all of humanity is bad. This is my eight-year-old, right? Because <laughs> that's what the nature show told her, you know? Right. You know, and so there's, I'm always sort of having to correct some of this discourse. I think that there is a, um, the priority with young kids, for me anyway, is that they have an appreciation for humanity's dependence on ecosystems to thrive and live, not to mention all those other animals that they love to. And so, um, you know, an awareness of how that is born unevenly, how our lifestyle may have something to do with that, but without overloading them with so much guilt and self-loathing that they don't see themselves as having a role in making this any better. You know, that's where I think that the real damage can happen. You can teach young kids all this horrible stuff, but if you don't also teach them that they're that they're calling on this planet is to do great things um, about all this stuff, then it, I think it can be very damaging. And I think I, I always try to overbalance on that other side. Um, 
but we'll see. <laughs> Given <laughs> their exposure to my book in the time, who knows? <laughs> well, but it, I mean, it sounds like you are really are working to sort of balance out giving them information about climate change and then also helping them sort of navigate their emotions about it. Yeah. Yeah. And the emotions part about it, they're kind of a, te- they're like the guinea pig for my book or the test case, you know, Yeah. as am I, you know, I, I thought I was writing this book for my students, but I didn't realize that it, how close it would get to home for me and my kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then when you think about the future that is ahead for your children, let's say 20 years from now, um, what do you want that future to look like, including a future of, you know, what you expect climate change to be looking like? Yeah, um, well, you know, the IPCC reports that came out yesterday <laughs> um, give us, you know, some hope and some window and some space for changing, you know, things around. And my perception of climate forecasts is that um, there is a whole lot that can be done to save off the worst of the forecasts. And, you know, I, I expect a lot of that to happen. And that might be misguided hope, cruel optimism, or whatever you want to call it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I can, you know, existentially function if I don't have some level of faith or hope that that's going to, that some of that stuff will happen. So I, and I also know from the science that if you don't actually sort of pretend to believe that, if you don't allow yourself some level of belief that maybe things could be okay, that things could turn around, that these forecasts are not inevitable, that you, they, those will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And so I hold on to that expectation that things will not be as bad as a forecast mostly because it's the most important strategy, not necessarily because of my, of what the probability of it is. You know? right. um, so, but I, I actually also see positive turns on climate change. Things have changed so much in the last 20 years around climate change politically and lots of terrible, 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 terrible things are going to happen. And also things are going to, some things are going to improve. Um, I think my kids, just like me, are going to just be muddling around in the fight about it, you know, and hopefully engaging in in climate change in some way in their life. You know, my even my own husband, who's an environmental biologist, he just walked past and saw my <laughs> um, working in the office outside the shed. Um, even his work was never explicitly about climate change is now about climate change. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I do see the sort of project breakdown, you know, mantra of every job, a climate job and the ecosystem, the, the economies that we have built on are falling apart. I mean, this is, we're in the womb, not the tomb. Something is changing, you know, um, whatever structures, economies, systems that happen as a result of the demise of fossil fuels is going to produce something else and they will be engaged in that, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. you know, and and we're all just going to have this, have the stuff we're dealing with for the rest of our lives and the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, they're all going to be doing this, trying to make sure the planet is livable. (laughs) Right. So So, 
Yeah. So if you had a space to sort of dream a little bit, um, from your perspective, what could be done to create the kind of future that you would be hopeful about for your children? Yeah. That's such a great question. I don't think I've really ever given myself that space. <laughs> <laughs> no, I preach it, girl. I, I do not necessarily walk the walk. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I think that what I'd like to see, if I could fantasize, I, I do not actually see that this is the main leverage point of change that's happening right now. But I do want to see... Um, some of the things we've seen glimpses of actually come to pass. So these are the fact that we have a structure called COP where countries can come together and come up with agreements around climate change is very cool. Like that is like the coolest thing. If you think about it, mm-hmm. like, who did that? people did that, <laughs> but then to actually make the agreements and follow through with them. That, if you want me, my one thing I'd like, that would be it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if there could be, the problem is with, with the way capitalism, multinational capitalism is working right now, is that there's not enough incentive built in to do that. And unless everybody agrees to do it, and we also have this, you know, loss and damages stuff, you know, where is the funding, the kind of climate um, justice climate apartheid, you know, this climate debt argument. There's been sort of different ways of framing it over the past three or four cops. But this notion that those countries that have benefited the most from industrialization and from the use of fossil fuels might have something to owe countries who are on the front lines of climate change. This kind of balancing of the moral ledger seems like the only way to do this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that I would say at COP, if we could have some progress along those lines, that would be my fantasy because that would be the sort of the like silver bullet solution. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to, I, I, I've not deluded myself to think that this is how it's going to go down. But if you would leave me the, <laughs> the space to fantasize. I think we all need, you know? I think we all need space to fantasize at some point. Um, because at least from my most optimistic perspective, positive progressive change doesn't happen without some level of fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I talk about this. And the first story in my book about students not being able to visualize a future that they would work for, desire, anything, was my first realization that the imagination is at the base of our problems. Um, so, yeah, you think I have a better imagination about this. But, you know, short of that happening, honestly, Jade, um, short of that happening, people are creating micro-utopias absolutely everywhere. You know, the Just Transition Movement, the Green New Deal, what's happening. There's so many spaces where this is happening in. And, um, you know, I, I just, I, I believe, actually, that, that at some point this is going to tip the scales. Mm-hmm. You, when you look at the amount of people across the world who are very worried about climate change, this, you know, the youth climate movement really brought this to start relief, but so did the, the data on youth that came out in the 2021 Lancet report. This generation, if not in my generation, at least in that generation, with the amount of concern that is obviously 
there. It's redolent with concern. Um, something's going to change at some point, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So last question. That's all of my questions. What haven't I asked you that you would like to include? I don't think <laughs> there are probably a million things and nothing. I don't, I don't know. Jade, you know everything about me now. <laughs> well, I imagine I haven't touched on everything that might be important to you as a parent or how you think about parenting or your kids. Yeah. I think that, I think that the one thing I might add is that um, there's some level of cognitive dissonance about all of this that I find really difficult. And that is that, to do all this stuff, you know, that we're supposed to be doing in American society, it's just, it's, I can't, it's very difficult to figure out a way to do it that doesn't involve a lot of complicity and impact mm-hmm. and externalization of costs to people who we never will see, you know, mm-hmm. and, and ecosystems will probably never see precisely because we're ruining them while we're living here, you know. Um, and I think that that cognitive dissonance would I would really like some resolution to that. I would really like it to see not just this grassroots stuff where people change the system because they stop using fossil fuels in whatever way, shape, and form, and they do enough zero waste that 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 kicks off some kind of technological and capitalist change. I would just love to see the ability to to have, um, you know, so, so that people aren't thinking that they have to choose between having the American dream life stuff and caring about it and supporting climate change mm-hmm. because it might be okay here in back to the land movement, Arcata, California, where I'm standing to, you know, you have solar panels, grow your own food, bring, you know, close the circle on stuff, but it's not really accessible to most people. And mm-hmm. it's not culturally accessible to most people, much less economically success- accessible. And I think that, you know, what, what we really need is a movement that takes that swath of people between, you know, let's say 75% of Americans care about climate change and only 15% have the ability to actually live a life that looks like they care about climate change. Mm-hmm. And then the huge swath of people who are like me kind of bumbling around trying to figure out what to do about it, you know, and th- that's a lot of positive energy in, in, in a category of concern that does that gets kind of wasted. And I'd like to see some kind of, um, you know, place to put a lot of that energy. I would like to see that energy rewarded by policy. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You know, we got to get organized better. And we have to, I think that one of the root causes of all, a lot of this problem is actually the divisions and culture, culture wars that are happening in the U.S. right now. So we get all, you know, we have these conversations, like I just told you about, where, you know, we don't get anywhere because people attach different politics to, to climate policy and, and they, they, uh, they act out of fear instead of out of uh, that ideal dream of, of the fantasy you talked about. You know? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. That's all of my questions. I really appreciate you joining me today and this has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jade. Absolutely. That's our episode. Thank you for listening to Climate Anxiety and the Kid Question. And please be sure to join us again.